Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos, and we're picking up this evening on page 239, and we're currently reading Hypothesis 28, and 28 and 29 are pretty closely linked together. Uh, the uh, fathers begin to speak to us about asceticism and the particulars of the, the life and the struggle to embrace it, and uh, at times even having to force ourselves to embrace the disciplines of the spiritual life. And 29 takes us into kind of furious battle with the, the demons uh, as one begins to enter more fully into the spiritual life, but in particular the spiritual struggle. Excellent writings, uh, very cl clear about uh, the nature of asceticism, the uh, the kinds of asceticism that are most helpful, I think, in particular struggles, but also the particulars of the battle that is waged against us when we, we begin to take it up. So some very beautiful writings to come. So 239 at the very bottom of the page. Whoever then wants to come after him as a follower, let him deny himself in accordance with what he said and thus will he be able, after taking up his cross, to follow him. For the cross shows that we are ready for every affliction and every hardship, and even for death itself. Just as he who has been made ready to be crucified has in his mind the thought of death, which is the only thing he thinks about, and in this way comes forth to the place of execution as a man who does not reckon that he has even a short time to live, in this world, so should he think who desires to put into practice what the Lord says, if a man will come after me, that is, he who wishes, the Lord says, to live in this world will remove himself from true life, but he who thinks out of longing for me to sacrifice his life will not suffer any reproach or harm in eternal life. From henceforth then, prepare to absent your soul wholly from this life, and I will give you eternal life, says the Lord, just as I promised you. And in this life, I will demonstrate my promise indeed. And henceforth, you will receive assurance of the good things to come and the pledges of these goods. Unless then you first turn away from the present life, you will not find eternal life. And once you have begun to struggle in preparing for this, then you will regard all those things that are reckoned to be exceedingly tiresome and distressing as unworthy of consideration. For unless one first turns from this life and the world, on account of his desire for the future life, on account of his desire for the future life, one cannot withstand afflictions. So again, uh, very much like we've heard in Climacus as well, that uh, a clear decision to, to take this path to follow the Lord, to die to self, to die to sin, to die even to those things that potentially lead us into sin in order to focus fully upon the Lord and serving him uh, in light of the promise of eternal life and the joys of eternal life. And so we aren't presented with something that can be an avocation or, or something that is out at the margins of our life, that the, what we are called to do is to follow the Lord and follow him wholeheartedly. 
regardless of what this might mean for us in terms of the sacrifices made and even death itself, and if not death uh, physically, then death to the things of this world, in particular those that give rise to the passions. We are then presented with a question. He who has separated himself from every distraction and care, and with this preparation has entered into the struggle, at what point should he begin to wrestle against sin? So it might seem sort of un unusual to us to, to begin to ask when one would begin such a thing. Uh, but I think what we've heard in the, the previous paragraph sort of lets us know that once one has pondered and made a firm decision, that this is the path that one is going to follow, that one is going to follow the Lord and make that commitment, then the ascetic life begins immediately. And there is a sense where one does have to count the cost and look honestly at the life that Christ has called us to and uh, what that really means for us in this world. And to look closely at all the things that have Christ has said, but in particular to look at his own fate within the world as well. The answer uh, might seem somewhat surprising to us, but uh, in terms of what's emphasized, but again, very, very clear. Fasting and vigils are the foundations of all the virtues. For when they're undertaken with discretion, these virtues help a man to attain every good. That is, beginning, the beginning of all evils is the comfort of the belly and the softness that comes from sleep which excites the desire for fornication, dulls the mind, and makes one continually gross and darkened. Just as the desire for light comes to healthy eyes, so also he who fasts with discernment desires prayer. For when one begins to fast as a result of the fasting, his mind starts gradually to wake up, and he experiences the desire to converse with God. But also the body, when it experiences the, I'm sorry, and, but also the body, when it fasts and is not burdened with satiety, does not need to sleep for the entire night in bed, but wakes up eagerly to serve God. So tying of two things, you know, certainly I've heard fasting and prayer uh, being tied together or fasting, prayer and almsgiving. Uh, that we hear. Uh, St. John uh, Peter Chrysologus in particular uh, links the three very closely together, but here fasting and vigils and that it awakens something within the soul. It awakens the hunger and desire for the Lord that when we humble the body in such a way in regards to these fundamental appetites, what is dulled by feeding them to say should he, uh, suddenly comes to life within us. So fasting, both in terms of food and sleep, allows the mind to begin to shift its focus to converse with God. And so it creates a deeper desire for prayer. And we often don't talk about sleep in our day, other than the need for it and to have a good night's sleep. But uh, here to think of it as another appetite and, uh, and tying it to fasting in particular, when one is weighed down heavily by food, 
by eating things that are rich or reading, eating late, then it makes a person typically sleep in a heavier way, or it weighs a person down in such a way yeah, that I think just from experience, all the blood flows to the stomach to digest, that it makes it very difficult for a person to pray. And you just need to watch people after a Thanksgiving meal. You know, all the guys are laying on the couch with their snoring after five minutes after after eating. And, uh, and typically, I, I think this is what the fathers discovered, that when the body is weighed down, that there isn't the, the, the same desire, the same hunger for prayer and the same kind of lightness of being that one experiences. And the same is true for, for sleep. If we spend long times in bed, we're going to be sluggish, uh, not only in the day's work, uh, but also in terms of, of our prayer life. Whereas if we rise early and if we limit that sleep, uh, then uh, again, there's uh, in that humbled state, again, there awakens within us that desire for God, what he can alone can give us. And this is something that I think really only arises out of experience. And when one enters into it, the practice of fasting, when we struggle for a long enough period of time that we begin to see and taste the fruit of it, begin to experience something of that desire for prayer and desire for God. And the same thing with sleep. I think often there's a kind of fear, uh, a kind of an unnatural fear, I think, that if we limit it or moderate it or break it on occasion, uh, that we are going to be less left weakened, uh, but have nothing on a spiritual level that strengthens us or clarifies our vision spiritually. And, uh, and so never tasting that, we perhaps never enter into this discipline very deeply. And so I'm glad that he starts with th these two that are rooted so much in these natural appetites. This is where you begin the ascetic life. And, uh, outside, and so it's very simple. Outside of this, the, the mind and the heart remain dull. And that desire for the Lord does not begin to develop. Any questions so far on any of the paragraphs? No? Okay. Oh, I saw one hand go up. Eric. Yeah, I'm I'm rather skeptical. <laughs> um, um, I mean not, I mean we know I mean I we know today scientifically that that, that sleep is is uh, is important for health. Um, and and uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I think I've done quite well in my relationship with the Lord without depriving myself of most of the nights of sleep on a regular basis. Um, it kind of makes it sound like that, that, um, that you're never going to make any progress unless you do this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I just, I, I, I have my doubts about that. Well, you know, I, your point's all taken, and I wouldn't say that one makes no progress in the spiritual life. But I, I think what we find within the fathers, again, that, you know, this humbling of the mind and the body, and it's tied to the desire for Christ, 
and what he alone can give us. That the natural desires being tied more specifically to our desire for Christ and the experience of that on a deep level is something that shows us that it opens us up. You know, the humbling uh, allows us to be more radically attentive to God in our prayerfulness. And uh, there's something even just in, you know, the, the fasting in and of itself, you know, to be offering this to God as well as the sleep. You know, both are a kind of act of faith, you know, to set aside our natural desires and appetites in order to increase our desire, our appetite, as it were, for God. And uh, again, you know, I think my faith in what is being said is rooted in the experience of centuries of the ascetics living it. And uh, again, I think part of it is the experience of it. Science might, may say something to us, and it's often said much to us about eating and diet and as well as sleep. Uh, but we, we are talking about this from a spiritual perspective and what the grace of God uh, does in, in relationship to our natural desires and appetites, especially when we are, are seeking uh, to reform and re redirect things towards God that are often directed more towards simply the satisfaction of our own appetites, that these bodily desires are often tied to other bodily appetites and desires. And so what the fathers experience that in the humbling of them, not only does the desire for God begin to grow, but the ordering of the, the appetites that often uh, have such a hold upon us and then lead us into sin outside of the grace of God. And so, you know, the, the judgment isn't simply from our own perspective and our own reason, but I, I think it's what we see within the, the saints. You know, what, what we are called to is a life of, of heroic, of deep, unceasing prayer and uh, a heroic love for virtue and hatred for sin. And so what is being set before us is uh, not a path of feeling, you know, that we're being good enough or that we uh, have made a certain amount of progress uh, along the path that we've set out for ourselves, but we, we are looking for those who sought to enliven their desire for God, uh, both by grace, but also by the ascetic life. And when we look to the lives of the saints, I think we see this constant witness within them of this practice of self-discipline, not as an end in itself, but again, as opening up this greater space and create for God and desire for God. Sue and Mark, I think your hand went up first. 
Yes. Um, thank you, Father. Um, the thing that I was thinking, listening to Eric's comment, this, you know, I can relate to what he is saying because I find when I try to, a couple of times as I've been, when I've been trying to deprive myself of sleep, of sleep I am getting up and stumbling, you know, I'm not really awake and I'm stumbling around and uh, just trying to uh, pray. And so what I will do is I will sit down and I'll do my Jesus prayer, um, but it just doesn't feel like I'm able to concentrate very well. Um, but I think after a while you do begin to wake up and then there's a concentration there. My question is more or less, um, rather than you know, you're jump, jumping right into the deep end, which is way too much for most of us, just to move that clock back 15 minutes at a time so that it becomes more doable. So, so if you're used to waking up at seven, move it back to 6.30 and, you know, or, or um, uh, 6.45 and then 6.30 and then 5.45, you know, and to be, um, approach it reasonably, can you, you know, in that sense of the word, so that you're not walking into the furniture in the middle of the night hurting yourself. Right. And, you know, I think we've talked about this many times, before that, you know, in embracing certain disciplines, in particular uh, bodily disciplines, that one would do that over the course of time in order that the, the body and the mind might adjust to it. And fasting is a good example of that. And we've talked before about why people often cannot sustain a fast that they embrace for, for Lent because it's not a regular reality within their spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes too difficult and their blood sugar goes haywire. They become cranky, you know, prayer becomes even more difficult. And then eventually they can uh, quit the fasting all, altogether. And uh, I think what we see within the fathers is the development of uh, moving towards the regular practice of fasting from all of these different appetites, you know, whether it's for, for food or for sleep, that our tendency is to give us more, give ourselves more than what we need, right. to, you know, to satiety or to gluttony, you know, that we will often sleep well beyond what is the need and eat beyond what is the need. And so to regain a kind of order, a right order and discipline there often requires restraint of these appetites. And certainly uh, Cassian in particular warns against going to the extremes uh, in the practices. And so for a person who's taking up the disciplines, it doesn't mean, you know, suddenly they fast every day of their life and they embrace the regular fast of the Desert Fathers or suddenly drop down to three hours of sleep a night uh, in order to pray. But it's, you know, talking about developing a life that is directed toward God on every single level of who we are as human beings, including our most fundamental appetites and the things that we take for granted. And we begin with, again, with the simplest of things. We make our, we move from outward inward. So our basic physical needs, we, we begin to order 
uh, toward God. And so food, sleep, drinking, you know, all, all the things that we simply do according, in accord with our own will and most often to, to access. Red. I must say that for myself, and though I do not have the opportunity for it anymore, that I have never felt more joy or peace or intimacy in prayer than that which experienced individual adoration. Being someone who struggles with moderation and sleep, it's hard to accept. But my own experiences confirm what the fathers say so many times over. It really does feel like a whole different kind of prayer. Something about the deep silence and stillness of the night brings us so close to God. Yes, you know, I think there is something about the, the stillness of the night and also what we see in Christ himself, often spending entire nights in prayer, that one is freed from the, the, the noise uh, of the day and the distractions of the day. And again, even sort of the being humbled in mind and body, what Sue describes on a certain level here, you know, even the fatigue that we might experience, uh, that there is a kind of openness or vulnerability, I think it creates there for us before God, that we come to acknowledge our need for his grace and for what he alone can give us for life. And I think we more and more in our life look to science, which is not, I have no problem with, certainly, but we look to the guidance of the things of this world rather than the guidance of what we find in the scriptures in Christ himself or in the saints who are, are teaching us the science of sciences, how it is that one lives for the Lord on every single level of our being and takes into account the fall, the, the uh, weakness of will that we struggle with, the darkness of intellect, concupiscence, how it is that we address the passions in our life, uh, but also foster uh, a prayerfulness and openness to God uh, that comes through the ascetical life. And, you know, we've talked about asceticism in general, and I'm not going to repeat everything that I always say about it, but again, we will accept it uh, in every other area. But for some reason, when it comes to being strict in that regard, in the practice of our faith and fostering prayer and struggling with the passions, we can shrink back at times. You know, we, you know, when athletes go, you know, push themselves to the limit, we, we, we don't question that. But when we look at the ascetics of the faith, you know, the, those striving really to give themselves over to God, but also to struggle not only with their, their own weakness of will, but as we will hear in the next hypothesis against forces that radically rage against them, that somehow we don't see the necessity of it. You know, soldiers, you know, in preparing for battle go under this kind of intense training. And cer certainly the warfare that we are engaged in is far more than any worldly soldier can imagine that we struggle against a sleepless enemy that is set upon our demise. 
And so the watchfulness that we are to foster, uh, the, the clinging to God who is our, our strength and hope in the battle is what, what is necessary and doesn't come you know, simply, I think, in accord with what our own judgment, our reason at times might tell us. And, you know, we'll, I'll get you to your question here in a moment, Ambrose, but I think when it comes to, you know, prayer, for example, we will often, instead of allowing God to guide us where he wants us to go in terms of the depth of it, we will make ourselves the sole judge and arbiter of what that looks like how much time we can make for it, what we think is sufficient, uh, rather than allowing ourselves to be guided, you know, either by the saints or spiritual director or by simply by the spirit into a depth of prayer that God is calling us to and what is necessary for our life and our sanctification. And so all of this is tied to so many of the different things that we've talked about, you know, obedience, and, uh, you know, of, of seeking to, to set aside one's will in a way that the, the world would find hard, hard to understand. Ambrose, it seems like it doesn't have to be severe to the point of being unhealthy, but more like discipline in the sense of exercise, limiting within reason, unless we feel God is calling us to do more at times. Like you, Father, have suggested getting up early in the morning for a time of prayer. On the other hand, for many, in our day at least, we fail on the other side of it, often not getting enough sleep because we lack the uh, lack of discipline in favor of entertainment, for example. In that case, the better exercise might first to be more disciplined about getting an appropriate amount of sleep, which may better set us up for success in regular prayer as well. Yeah, you know, I would agree with that. You know, certainly that our day and age that people will uh not give themselves enough sleep but I, you know it's funny i think that's part of the the disorder that is rooted in the disconnect from god and even our sin and i remember we we talked to care about a couple of times that psychologically people will do this thing when they overwork you know when their identity becomes their work and they're working like 18 hours a day that they will come home and uh, that they will engage in all of these activities, but then they'll stay up playing video games or surfing the net and put off going to sleep, procrastinate going to sleep. And that there's a kind of passive aggressive aspect of this because they are frustrated with not really having life of their own because they're so fully immersed in the demands of their work. And so they're trying to hold on and steal back that time for themselves. And so they stay up late and then they exhaust themselves and they're exhausted through the day, the next day. And it makes no sense on you know, the level of reason. But it makes all the sense in the world when I think one's identity is rooted so firmly in the things of this world. And I think things like work, when our focus isn't upon God, then our work becomes disordered. And in response to that, the, the mind and the heart are going 
to rebel in their own own way. And I think what the fathers discovered is that, you know, the more that we order our life toward God, then we, we become what we are meant to be. And it doesn't lead to less joy or less health, healthiness, even the rigorous kind of asceticism. I mean, these guys lived into their, you know, well into the over a hundred years old, you know, at times eating vegetables and, and bread and minimal amounts of that. And uh, so the, the sort of the whole health thing begins to break down for me, especially now that, uh, you know, this whole intermittent fasting thing has become popular because now everybody's saying that fasting is, you know, incredibly healthy for you and so that you should be doing it. And then everybody jumps on the bandwagon. And, uh, but when it comes to religious fasting, uh, you know, no go. And, uh, but, you know, you know, the point is, you know, it's not, there's a, Anthony puts forward here, our modern theory of work is Puritan tyranny. We can't take it, it's dominion over this world outside of the natural, normal human rhythm. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I think th there is a kind of tyranny that our rootedness in the world, uh, you know, then takes hold of us. And the only way to be free of it is to have our focus upon Christ and to order everything towards him. So it's not, you know, this self-punishment. It's not a matter of endurance as its own end. But Christ is the end of all this. Again, we hear this language of desire, of allowing you know, this worldly kind of desire, even on the most basic levels, be transformed into this greater desire for God. And I think we often lose that connection, uh, even as we're talking about it, you know, sometimes in reading a work like this. Okay. Was there another comment? I thought I saw another hand. No. Okay, well, let's go on to see what more he says here. To the extent, then, that the seal of fasting is placed on a man's body, his mind contemplates with compunction, his heart wells up with prayer, and austerity is imprinted on his face, while shameful thoughts remain far from this man. Fasting is the adversary of evil desires and vain associations. Fasting is a good road that leads to every good deed, and he who neglects it confounds all the virtues. For this is a commandment that was imposed by God on our nature from the very beginning for our protection, that is, to avoid the forbidden fruit. And man subsequently fell into sin by transgressing the commandment to fast. From the point that the fall began, spiritual athletes have been struggling to return to the fear of God by observing the law of continence and by fulfilling all the commandments. It was from here that the redeemer of our race himself commenced his fight against the devil. After baptism, his spirit led him into the desert where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. In the same way then, 
all who come out of the world to follow Jesus should lay the foundation of a godly edifice on the same ground, fasting. If he who ordained our salvation fasted, who among those who want to keep this law need not fast? Up to that point, the human race did not know victory, nor did the devil ever experience defeat from our nature. With this weapon of fasting, however, he has again been made powerless as in the beginning. So, again, you know, we, we see how deeply rooted the, the fathers are in the scriptures. Uh, and in the life of Christ, that he becomes the standard for us. And so we see that, you know, on the verge of beginning his public ministry, that he's driven by the Spirit into the desert where he does fast and where he also engages in this spiritual battle with the, with the evil one. And though humbled radically in mind and body, hungry, admittedly, that he engages in this warfare with about with the demon who comes to tempt him at the end of that fast and yet we see him respond with a kind of clarity and strength to each temptation that comes to him and each temptation that came to him was the the same kind of temptation that came to adam and eve directed towards his self-identity and in this case, the, the poverty that he embraced in embracing our humanity in order to redeem it. So we, we see the temptations, you know, change the stone into bread. You know, let go of this hunger and the weakness and the poverty of that flesh. Make use of your divine power and miraculously change the stones into food for yourself. Or again, you know, fling yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, cast off the weak flesh, reveal your true identity. It says that the angels will come to lift you up lest you da dash your foot against the stone. Or seize by divine right what is rightfully yours, all the kingdoms of the, uh, of the world. And so, you know, the temptation you know, for him and that is directed towards him is not to humble himself, not to embrace our humanity or the obedience that is tied to it. And for us as well, you know, I think as we seek to imitate him, you know, to, to begin this path of asceticism, to fast as he did, uh, that we are tempted to you know, cast that weakness off in one way or another. And so what we can find many different reasons to rationalize why we, we should not uh, weaken the flesh, why we, we should not uh, uh, engage in this kind of discipline. Uh, and we'll find all the supporters that we need in the world to help us do that. But when we look to the Lord himself, we see that this prepares him not only for what is to come in terms of his obedience to the Father's will, but it prepares him for the, the battle against uh, the evil one himself. And so we are shown by Christ himself that these are the weapons that are needed uh, to clarify 
one's focus upon what is from God and what is from the world or the evil one. Anthony writes, the only way Jesus could have done this, in my opinion, is out of love. Love is the most powerful reason to put aside even unselfish weakness and even the use of reason. If I don't satisfy myself, I'll, I'll go nuts or die. Right. You know, I think it is, you know, love is not blind. We, we've, oh, we've grown up hearing that, you know, that somehow love doesn't see the truth. And when the opposite is true, love sees with clarity and it sees the truth, certainly uh, about God, but the truth about ourselves and the, the truth of the evil one and the temptations that come to us. And uh, the, the lie that is put before us is that, again, as sort of as you put it here, that this will weaken us to a point that we will be unable to function, that we will be weakened in some way, that we will make ourselves sick. And, uh, and so, you know, it's not even worth going down that path. And we've seen the drift away from it. We've seen the drift away from the ascetical life. And we know how minimal it has become in terms of church practice in and of itself. Uh, you know, what, what's required of us in terms of two small meals, one regular meal, and what, and the fact that there are only two fast days, at least in, in the West, uh, and uh, fasting before receiving the Holy Eucharist, that we've moved to this kind of minimalism in practice. And part of it could be because of abuses in the practice or lack of understanding in the past as to why we would embrace this path. Uh, and But instead of going back to the traditions to try to gain a deeper understanding of why one would want uh, to live this way of life and why it is absolutely necessary in the spiritual life, we have failed to, to form ourselves uh, in the practice of it. And, you know, one of the challenges of this, again, is that, uh, th that knowledge of it comes through experience and until we begin to experience the, the fruit of it. And so if there's part of us that's saying no, and the, we, we know because of our, our weakness, our negligence, you know, or our lack of desire, that that's going to be a pretty strong part of us, you know, that to say no to fasting or no to ordering our sleep. Uh, and so there's nothing being put forward that encourages that. And what I, I'm finding so fruitful in reading this uh, hypothesis as well as the next one is that it not only clarifies for us that this deepens the desire for God and our hunger for him, but it also prepares us for the fierce spiritual battle that is the reality for us from day to day, moment to moment. Yeah. 
So let's see where else he takes us here. In the same way then, all who come out of the world follow Jesus should lay foundations. Did I already read this paragraph? Yes, I did. I'm sorry. Our Lord, the author of victory over the devil, placed the first crown of victory on the head of man. From the time, from the time therefore, when the adversary sees this weapon in a man, he immediately is immediately frightened, recalling the defeat whereby he was overcome by the Savior in the desert, wherein his power was enfeebled with the weapon given to us by the author of our salvation. This weapon is very powerful at fending off the missiles hurled by the enemy. Moreover, it provides great boldness within us and the waging of warfare. For though a man's body be wearied and humiliated at those times when he is beset by the phalanx of the demons, nonetheless, his heart is thus armed with courage and boldness, and he stands up against his foes more gallantly and fights more bravely against them, burning continually with aggressive zeal against them. The struggler does not stop nor does he allow himself to rest until he has completely chased away these foes from himself and annihilated them with the help of God and by the practice of the other commandments. And so what we, we hear the author telling us is that far from weakening us spiritually, it strengthens us beyond measure spiritually, that we might experience physically the weakness, and we might even feel ourselves to be humiliated. What was the, the, the words that he used here? Uh, wearied and humiliated uh, in, in body, that when it comes to the spiritual battle itself, that fasting uh, linked with prayer is such a powerful weapon that it allows us to engage in the spiritual battle with courage not because of self-confidence, but because of the confidence that comes through the deepening of prayer uh, and intimacy with God, that the fasting itself becomes a form of prayer, that you know, we empty ourselves in order to hunger more for, for the Lord. It becomes an expression of our desire for the heavenly bridegroom. And that linked with our prayer which is our calling out to him and for his grace, gives us a kind of boldness in that spiritual battle. So that when we are, when they're hurling, you know, their weapons at us, uh, that we can engage in that battle without fear or anxiety. And, you know, sometimes when we are beset with uh, thoughts or temptations, you know, we can immediately be overcome with them. We, we cease to engage in the spiritual battle, you know, that we don't turn to prayer. We just, we, when we feel ourselves being overwhelmed by, by it, whereas a person who's fasting and that attentiveness is open to God, then that being besieged by even the vilest of thoughts is not going to make a person shrink or shrink from the spiritual battle. Anthony, this reminds me, oh, this reminds me of the patristic idea that Jesus was acting as bait, which the devil thought 
was easy prey, but the devil was tricked and defeated in imitation of Christ, then we weaken ourselves, and only if we are united, united to the vine, God desires to be weakened and thus be a trap in the imitation of Christ. My strength is made perfect in weakness, quoting St. Paul, right? And is that feeling of being overwhelmed by vile thoughts a sin? No, it isn't, uh, because I, I think it's inevitable that uh, the swiftness with which such temptations come to us and the, the nature of them, uh, that one inevitably is going to shrink back from them because of, of the nature of them, uh, not wanting them to enter into one's heart. Uh, but it is the, the fasting and prayer that keeps us from, uh, as it were, fleeing the battle. You know, once we move toward Christ, then his virtue becomes our, our virtue, his strength becomes our strength. And so even if we are besieged uh, by the things that are terrible, and even if we are besieged an entire day, that we aren't thrown out of ourselves in terms of our true identity as sons and daughters of God. And I think that's often the attempt, you know, look at the sick thoughts that you have, or, you know, the nature of them, or they're blasphemous. And, you know, one can very easily question one's identity or the value of the spiritual life altogether, or the value of praying. And, you know, it's, we've talked about this before that, you know, when one begins to take up arms, and engage in the warfare, then one is warred against all the more by the evil one in order to dissuade from prayer. Or when we receive the Holy Eucharist, again, with a great desire from the, for the Lord, that it's often at those times the temptations will come to us to seek to undo what it is that we received within the Holy Eucharist, or same thing with confession. And so we have to understand the nature of the spiritual battle. Uh, I've often brought up St. Charbel, you know, being uh, made the hermit of his monastery, and the abbot saying to the rest of the community, this is not a reward for him, that he knew that Charbel was going into a place of greater battle, you know, into the solitude, the desert, if you will, of that hermitage, and, uh, and to you know, to be there alone in the midst of it. And, uh, and so I think that arises out of, of a clear view of the spiritual life, that our praying, our engaging in the spiritual disciplines, isn't necessarily going to make our life easier. And, you know, filled with sweet, the sweetness of consolations that I think often we, we desire, you know, that we will you know, experience happiness in this world or, or worldly kind of happiness rather than peace in Christ or joy in him. Uh, it's interesting, you know, when we look at the lives of particular saints that are pure of heart, uh, John Vianney, uh, Padre Pio, when the demons cannot uh, afflict them because their hearts are so given over to God, and, you know, we know John Vianney was this incredible faster. Both men were, you know, men of 
deep prayer, that they are afflicted on this physical level, you know, beaten and thrown, thrown around. And, you know, John Vianney's neighbors could hear the battle at night, the evil one raging against him. And, but it's precisely because he had been fighting so fiercely that he's attacked all the more. And so I think, you know, we do a disservice to ourselves and to others when we aren't seeking to arm ourselves for the spiritual battle. And when we don't imitate Christ himself uh, as we prepare ourselves for the attack of the evil one. So, the struggles, struggler does not stop. When the zealot Elias was contending sedulously for the law of God, he passed his time in fasting. For fasting reminds one who properly undertakes it of the commandments of the Spirit and binds the old law to the grace that was given to us by Christ. Whoever disregards fasting is negligent and weak in all other struggles, as well and clearly shows his spiritual debility to the enemy by the neglect of fasting. It becomes evident that he is entering into the struggle unarmed. This is why the enemy attacks him boldly and without any toil overcomes him as one who is faint-hearted and defenseless. He quickly knocks him to the ground. Insofar as all of man's limbs are not ready to suffer the darts released by the enemy, since they are not fortified by this strong weapon of the fast, which we received from our master. So again, all of this, you know, in and through the eyes of faith, sort of is turning things on our head and in terms of our natural understanding of things that. Uh, fasting we see within the spiritual strugglers in the Old Testament and the prophets as they engaged in battle. But we see it in and through Christ take on this new meaning uh, that it, it becomes something that is strengthened by, by grace and allows us to overcome the attacks of the evil one. And if it's not a regular part of our life, then it is as if he, they tell us we're going into that battle unarmed. We are not arming ourselves for the battle that lies ahead. So again, all of this tells us that, you know, that fasting is not an episodic reality. And it's not something that we do simply out of discipline or to lose weight, you know, that it is part of this spiritual battle against the evil one, as well as being a way of ordering our will and our appetites and desires toward God. But it's far more than that. It's, again, it's rooted in being a struggler, one who's engaged in this fully in this spiritual warfare. And, you know, this is exactly <clears throat> what I think needs to be read by our generation, not to throw people into extremes of practice, but to clarify again what, why it is that we fast and why one would love fasting 
if you see it as one of the key weapons in the spiritual battle, and not only that, but a weapon that our Lord himself has given us and, and has shown us how to use it, that we would desire it. And so immediately enter into this discipline because we, we see its great value. Okay. Any thoughts about this paragraph? Okay. From the Drontcon. Abba Zosimos said that the grace of God always follows close on our intentions. And that with the help of grace, we succeed in accomplishing every good thing. Yet we do not seek to make a start on doing good, nor do we display a great and eager intention to attract the grace of God to help us. If we ever do manifest some intention to do good, this intention is paltry and sluggish does not make us worthy to worthy to receive any good from God. Do we not know that all of our spiritual endeavors are reminiscent of a seed and the fruit that it bears? It is like the farmer who sows seeds uh, on, his, on his land, but later awaits the mercy of God. God then proceeds to send his bounty with rains and favorable winds at the appropriate time, so that the seeds which the farmer threw into the earth may sprout, grow, and come to perfection. In this way, God helps him to gain many crops from a few seeds. And so, in the spiritual life, our, our responsiveness cannot be sluggish or paltry, that we, we show our desire for God by the zeal with which we enter into the spiritual practices that have been given to us. And it may seem like nothing to us, a few seeds, you know, the image here that is given to us, a few seeds that don't immediately seem to bear any fruit, but over the time, you know, uh, uh, strengthened by the grace of God, they, they bring a person to great perfection in the life of virtue and the spiritual battle. It's often the simplest things, I think, in the spiritual life that are neglected, you know, that don't hold out this natural appeal, you know, to one's sensibilities. You know, I don't think I heard People, anyone in seminary talk about fasting. We talked to about a lot about a, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things, you know, what certain theologians said and about certain teachings of the church, but not a word about fasting and you know its value and the preciousness of it and how important it is for the spiritual life. The same thing happens to us too, insofar as we sow an intention that is rich and generous and good deeds, then we shall find the grace from God, whereby we will henceforth be able to accomplish all good things without difficulty and toil. We see the same thing happen in the case of skills. He who comes to learn a skill toils at the beginning and experiences failure and often comes close to death. In spite of all this, however, he does not lose his pluck, nor is he discouraged, but he tries once more, 
However often he fails, at least as often he will also he also seeks to correct himself, showing his good intention to the expert. For if he loses heart and withdraws, he will not learn anything. On the contrary, he will only become accustomed gradually to the skill and learn it perfectly when he displays patience and works with exertion and persistence, being corrected by the expert whenever he makes a mistake. After he has learned the skill well, then he performs his work with ease so as to gain his livelihood from it. And so what is being put forward to us certainly is, you know, working with a kind of courage and working with a kind of endurance and not becoming discouraged, but also uh, learning from one's failures in it and turning to the one who's perfectly live it, lived it to draw us away from the mistakes in the practice of it. And I think this is what turning to the fathers is, you know, those who lived it and lived it to perfection, you know, made their mistakes certainly in the practice of it, but have passed on to us uh, the wisdom that arose out of their experience and what this then brings uh, to the spiritual, spiritual life. And so, you know, it's, it's not as though it's inconsistent within the spiritual writings of our faith. In fact, it's one of the most consistent things that we find next to prayer, that fasting is a regular part of the spiritual life and a necessary part of it. He who wishes to attain some virtue should act in this way. That is, at the outset, he should arm himself with bravery and show great resolve, and then should continue patiently doing what is good, ever calling on God to help and defend him. He should not be indifferent when he fails or despair and abandon the attempt, because in that case, he will never be able to accomplish anything good. He should get up whenever he happens to fall and increase his zeal through hope, waiting for God's mercy with patience. This is what Abba Moses had to say. The strength of those who wish to acquire the virtues is as follows. If they fall, let them not lose their courage, but let them be sure to make a new beginning at their endeavor. Insofar, then, as we put all of our energy into practicing the virtues, let us wait, await the Lord, showing him a generous resolve and calling on his aid. And without fail, he will strengthen us with his mercy and bestow his grace on us in abundance in which case we will accomplish every good easily and without exertion. So our resolve uh, in the face of our own weakness, as we learn to practice the virtues, uh, speaks to God of our desire for him. And so none of us, I think, should expect to uh, practice the things put forward to us in the first paragraph we read with perfection, that we look to the fathers again and again 
for their wisdom and guidance in the practice. And if we take up the practice of fasting and fall away from it, we step back into it, renewing that zeal and seeking out greater counsel in the practice. And it's not lacking, you know, that counsel that comes, comes to us from the fathers. And we see here, you know, it in abundance. Any comments? Rachel writes, oops, I'm sorry. There it is, it popped up. That is interesting. It reminds me of the saying that he who prays truly is a theologian. If one wishes truly to truly pray, they must do the will of God. The simple thing like ordering all of one's life, everything to the will of God, rising, sleeping, eating, praying, and everything in between. Why try to control one's thoughts if we cannot control our bellies or lose a little sleep? I'm not saying to give up vigilance, but to add to it the weapons the Holy Fathers are speaking of with patience and trust in his providence. A little grandmother hidden away can truly become a theologian this way. Very well, well put that, you know, why would we seek to engage in that far more difficult battle with the thoughts if we're not willing to struggle with the simpler things like the ordering of what one eats or doing without a little bit of sleep. And uh, you're drawing attention to what they said that the, you know, the prayer is the true theologian, I think is an important one. You know, the, again, the one who has this experiential knowledge of God is the true theologian. You know, is going to be drawn in and through the purity of heart and the deepening of faith into the greater truths of, of God, of divine things. And similarly, that, you know, how are we going to understand the life of virtue or the spiritual battle if we aren't willing to begin at the beginning and to train ourselves in the very practices that have been put before us? That this is really what novices would be trained in in the beginning of their of religious life of the spiritual life and for us perhaps as novices in the spiritual life we are being told this is this is where it begins the training in these fundamental disciplines in order that we might eventually be able to engage in this greater spiritual struggle angela Yes, I'm just thinking about um, Advent coming up and um, how traditionally that was a time of fasting that seems to have fallen away um, in the Catholic Church anyway. And, um, and also how, how much we eat, how we're all so much bigger than we used to be. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know in Australia, um, people used to be quite slim up until maybe... 20 years ago and now everybody's overweight yeah. it's um it's it's interesting to see the massive change just in a few short years yeah very mm. much and there are a lot of reasons for that of course but uh certainly losing you know our sensibilities spiritually or how we look at food you know and that certainly has affected us and you're right you know it's the the fast still exists uh, and the Eastern Rites, 
uh, the St. Philip's fast, or what is often called the Nativity fast, is embraced from the Feast of St. Philip on through the, the celebration of the Nativity. And uh, so we are coming up here in November to the beginning of that fast. And there's no reason why one cannot take up that discipline. In fact, it would be a good thing that we would be preparing our minds and hearts. It's interesting when you enter into Advent, all the readings are really powerful in terms of preparing oneself for the coming of the Lord and to prepare oneself spiritually for that. And so everything that we read throughout the season of Advent is telling us to engage in the spiritual disciplines more deeply in order that we might prepare our minds and our hearts to celebrate the, the central mystery of our faith with a true joy. Uh, but that would, it's really true on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, that uh, we prepare ourselves to receive our Lord at every moment by having our full selves directed toward him. And so I would encourage everybody to read, read up on the nativity fast. And uh, it doesn't mean, you know, sometimes the Eastern fast can be very strict, especially in terms of what is abstained from in regards to certain foods. And there is a freedom there, you know, to do what is within one's strength, you know, across the board, you know, t talking to Eastern Catholics and Eastern Catholic priests that, uh, you know, certainly not eating, you know, dairy or meat or oil or use of, use of oil, not everybody would be able to do that, you know, because it would really limit your diet in an extreme way. Uh, but still, it's, you know, the, the fast might not be as rigorous as the Lenten, but it's still enough, I think, to prepare oneself more for the great feast. And, you know, as Christian men and women, again, this is something that should bring us joy, that we have the, these vehicles in the spiritual life to help us enter into the, the deepest mysteries of our, our faith, and to do that with a greater purity of heart and zeal and longing for the Lord. And I think we get more captivated by sort of the cultural preparation for Christmas. And that often involves, you know, feet, constant feasting from Thanksgiving through, or, or even before, you know, certainly with Halloween, it starts, you know, with this abundance of candy that lasts till Christmas. But, uh, you know, we feast all through the, the holy season of Advent. And again, that's more of a cultural thing. It's not religious. It's not, it has nothing to do with the Christian faith, which tells us to do the opposite. And so, you know, I, I'd try, you know, this is part of our embrace of the tradition of the church in its fullness is to go, go back and look at these practices and take hold of them. And if we wait, you know, for it to be presented to us, it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, I, I think in our day and age, we have to go to the traditions of our faith. We have to go to the fathers and we have to take hold of these disciplines. Uh, 
for ourselves and to do it in a wise and prudent fashion, you know, with some spiritual direction, but nonetheless to do it. As we hear, you know, there's an, even an expectation that on some level we're going to fail or make mistakes and that we don't become disheartened by that, by step, but step back right back into it and take it up again. So a lot to ponder. And uh, some of the best things that I've read about fasting and the nature of the spiritual battle and again, why it should be a regular uh, feature of our spiritual life. And the next hypothesis even makes it clear for us. So just extraordinary counsel. Okay. So we'll stop there. It's 840. And we'll pick up next week. And then Wednesday, certainly with the latter divine sign. So we close this up always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.